Hello and welcome to the GC Call. This is a podcast we're bringing to you from Gulf Capital, the leading alternative investment firm in emerging markets from North Africa to Southeast Asia. I'm Alvaro Abella, Managing Director in the Private Equity Team. And I'm Nabil Ismail, Executive Director in the Private Equity Team. In addition to our own expertise, you will hear from other regional investors, entrepreneurs and management, as well as advisors who participate in the overall process to demystify it together. Today we're talking about mergers and acquisitions with Mohamed Madani and Rick Dallas. Madani has executed transactions across the Middle East and North Africa and has led a number of unique buy and build platforms including Metamed, Middle East Glass and CWB, which you'll hear about on the episode today. Rick, who's our Senior Managing Director, has led investment execution and post-acquisition monitoring. They bring a wealth of experience in helping us understand the tactical and strategic reasons to pursue a merger and or an acquisition and how these are structured once they have buy-in. So maybe we start off with you, uh, Mohammed. What is the rationale for M&A? How do we go about instilling the ethos of M&A as a way to help companies grow with our portfolio companies? You know, we, we really like to do buy-and-build as a strategy at Gulf Capital, and we've been very successful at it uh, in the past. I would categorize them into like three types of buy-and-builds that we've done. Uh, one of them is a local buy and build, something like what we've done in the Egyptian uh, glass uh, manufacturing business that we own, where we started with one player and then consolidated three players. That's one example of a local buy and build. The goal there was obviously for you know recognizing a lot of synergies of uh, operations and production from from this. Uh, uh, investment. Uh, the second uh, type of MA we've done is a regional one, uh, like what we did in the diagnostic imaging business, where we started with a player in uh, Egypt, added Saudi, Jordan, and we exited as a one stop shop, one of the largest uh, diagnostic imaging players in emerging markets. Uh, the play there was a bit different it was uh, mainly for diversification instead of being just in egypt we were in egypt jordan and saudi uh, you know uh, if one area goes down like in egypt during the revolution saudi and jordan were picking up and take, taking that so you have more of a diversification approach plus there was some synergies through procurement centralized procurement that was happening there uh, and finally a third type of bible we've done is like uh, the rcm platform where we started in the UAE, we expanded uh, to Australia. We acquired a company, a small company in Australia. Uh, we added two bolt-ons in uh, the US. And that's a, like a global buy and build uh, strategy. Uh, so, so we've done a couple of these uh, strategies in the past. The purpose every time differs. Uh, but the main goal is usually for growing. So it's like usually one plus one is 2.53 instead of uh you know looking at uh, cost synergies we're looking at network effects uh uh in MA. so that's that's our ethos usually in MA when we when we're looking at rick you look like you have something to say i always have something to say <laughs> but uh just to amplify on what muhammad has said i think strategically approaching this he's described good reasons why we do it from a tactical point of view from a strategic point of view um we have one of our central tenets that we want companies uh, and enterprises to be transnational in nature so that we manage risk and single country exposure. That's 
part of what we have figured out over the last 16 years is that that helps in a number of ways. It helps manage risk. It helps produce buyers from abroad to diversify your uh, liquidity event opportunities. Uh, and the the other thing it does is it gives you an opportunity to get meaningful scale. And one of the keys uh, in our region is to get scale where you attract trade buyers and can have um, uh, competitive liquidity events. Uh, so both of those are strategic tenants of how we think about we how we construct our portfolio, in addition to all of the tactical um, valuation aspects that it brings through buying power, uh, synergies, consolidation, et cetera. But really, the M&A add-on process, uh, we look at as a way of amplifying risk management and returns and liquidity um, opportunities. So from the company perspective, obviously, there are some strategic uh, reasons for that M&A. And then obviously, from our side, from the Gulf Capital perspective, uh, talking about expanding the buyer universe and looking at the exit, which at the end of the day, if we always live that uh, ethos that we have about being partners in growth uh, with our with our shareholders and with our uh, partners in the companies, then obviously they are also focused on the exit. And obviously they should also want um, to, to enhance their exit opportunities. But uh, when we're looking at those different markets, we're looking at opportunities. How do you how do you guys, together with the management teams, help identify targets, select targets? Because that process is probably at times like finding a needle in a haystack. Well, actually, I think uh, if you think about the way we have constructed our investment approach for uh, increasingly, and especially for Fund Four coming up. Um, we have identified sectors that we think are big growth sectors that offer a lot of opportunities. So we have done a lot of research. We don't start from uh, a start that is uh, just at the at the opening starting line. We think we have a little momentum in knowing what we want to do. So I know the 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 deal leaders like Mohammed will have the opportunity uh, to talk to managements about uh, about what the business plan is going to look like with some specificity. And in in negotiating with uh, with the owners uh, about a sale and how you go about building value, he will have had the opportunity to talk about organic growth opportunities, how long those are going to take, how you would fund them, what they would look like, uh, and M and A opportunities. So it's a mix of those two, uh, because one of the things we want to do as a portfolio management tool is increase our velocity of money. Um, you know, emerging markets have been slow uh, in terms of uh, start to finish, longer hold periods, although I think those are starting to be experienced in developed markets as well. But we want to increase the the speed at which we can get into an investment, grow it, and exit it for our LPs to create that velocity of money that more approaches what you see in developed markets. From the first couple of sessions that we have with the new targets, we start thinking with them about, you know, how can we grow this business? And, you know, there is the value creation plan that uh, says, you know, these are the items that we'll focus on. Usually we start with a long list of 100 items, but we always know that there's going to be three, four items that we should focus on that will be the really uh, value drivers. And at the same time, we ask them, is there opportunities for uh, M&A to boost the growth? And 
when we're looking at M&A, you know, we, to borrow a bit from our consulting friends, when we look at, uh, you know, is it new product, new market, new uh, market, uh, same product kind of thing, or same market, same product kind of quadrant, and we start putting these ideas on the table, and we say, where do we want to play more of the same in different regions, more of the same in the same country, or new product, new market uh, kind of uh, discussion. And uh, we start with a lo long list of uh, targets and uh, we st start looking to them, see the fit in terms of the founders, will, will they be uh, working together uh, properly. And in some cases where we find that the partners that we're going with or the management team is not capable of adding the M&A, then we, we, we even rethink about the initial target. Uh, you know, like Rick mentioned, we like to build, you know, um, global champions from the Gulf and Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, if we see that the aspirations of the partners is not in the same place as ours, we, we even w would walk away. So that's why it's very important to start early on. Um, uh, I think uh, the other important point that Rick mentioned is the lead time. You know, we have long lead times and, and that's why it's important to start earlier in the process of identifying a target of seeing, do we, I want, do we want to do buy and build with this uh, platform or is it just a single deal? Because adding the targets can take a year, two years. Uh, you've covered this before with uh, Norma uh, in a previous uh, call and many of the companies in the regions where we operate and or uh, we, we, we focus on, uh, they don't have the same level of readiness as you'd see in more developed markets. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of them look at, you know, finance as a back office. Uh, financial records are there if there's a regulatory or tax requirements, but sometimes it's not uh, well kept. So going through that process takes a very long time. Maybe deep diving into what you said earlier, Madani, for products and markets, because I've always thought about companies when you're exploring the rationale for that acquisition is either you're looking for a new product, you're trying to buy distribution, or you're trying to hire management through that acquisition. In this part of the world, which you know of these three you think is like the most lacking? And that's really why you're trying to, to buy your way through it. So yes, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I think it's important, you know, to uh, use the acquisitions to amplify our returns, reduce our risk, adding new products, new markets always is good for for, for a management team. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you get uh, a great management team as part of a bolt-on and you integrate it with your own team. And uh, that becomes like a cherry on top uh, kind of situation, free gift that you get. I think we've had a couple of these also in the past. Uh, uh, for example, when we acquired uh, uh, MGM, Mr. Glass. Uh, we, we, we got the management team with Tofi and his team, and they became the people who were running the entire Glass operations, although they were the third uh, acquisition in that platform. You sometimes get a great management team, you add it, but uh, the, the main gifts are returns and uh, reduced risk. If you look at uh, the matrix of of what you're trying to accomplish. If you're same product, same market, there's always a competition between whether you use M&A to get there or organic growth. Organic growth is typically cheaper in the sense that, that you don't pay goodwill for the effort of somebody else building it before you. Uh, but when it's it's different product, same market, the, the contrast sharpens a bit because 
as you enter a new product, even if you're in your home market, that can often be more difficult. But literally, when you take different product, different market, um, in the time frame that we have for how we build our companies and exit them, what our ideal would be, um, you're more often than not going to have to use some form of M&A strategy to get it to fit into a time frame that makes sense for a financial uh, sort of midterm investor. Um, particularly when uh, we're not talking about going from one state in the U.S. to another state, you're talking about moving across country lines, maybe different languages, maybe different regulatory systems, different uh, different aspects. The ability to get that different product or even your own product into another market, often the only way to do it realistically is M&A. And as you both of you have mentioned that carries risk because at the end of the day, we're saying we're trying to diversify risk, but even when entering a new market, that obviously has a set of, uh, whether it's execution risk, market risk in itself, depending on the markets, et cetera. So how do, how do you guys think about that risk? How do you assess it together with the management teams, right? Because I think that's something that is, that uh, you mentioned it, Madani, before, it's a, it's a great tool that we have in the toolbox in the sense that you have talent beside you that is very capable of assessing the real cost benefit of an acquisition. So the cost synergies, the revenue synergies, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are gonna be doing it. We're not sitting in the driver's seat. They're the ones who have to actually execute on whatever post-merger integration strategy we have concocted. So what? How, how do you do that? How do you think about that risk and how do you sort of analyze it and plan for it together with management teams. Maybe you can pack it with an example. Sure. Uh, so CWB is our investment in our uh, uh, intellectual property business. And uh, what we decided to do, because it made industrial logic, was to do a global buy and build in that case. So we started off with a company called CWB uh, that's based in Dubai. Uh, at that point, it was called Cedar White Bradley. It's got rebranded to CWB now. When we started the first uh, LOI negotiation with our partner, Halim, who's the founder of CWB, we told him we want to do this. And we saw that he was on board with the same strategy that we want to build a global player out of the Gulf for serving the intellectual property sector. Uh, we started identifying targets across the globe and you know we came with a like-minded uh, target and based out of Luxembourg that covers uh, basically non-EU European countries, also uh, the stand areas, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. And we saw that there's a lot of industrial logic of merging the two companies. Like-minded partner in uh, uh, Slobodan and getting along well with Halim, it made perfect sense. So that's why we combined the two companies. And Today, we have a one-stop shop that can serve IP in 55 countries. I mean, but that's amazing. Unpack that a little bit, uh, Malini. How do you go about coming from Dubai and then you go to uh, a gentleman sitting in Luxembourg and you tell him, come and join me on this global adventure? How do you do that? It takes it takes a lot of uh, you know uh, convincing to do a lot of drinking coffee, <laughs> yeah, a lot of coffee and tea. I, I I think once they see the industrial logic that you try to explain, you know, uh, IP is a very fragmented market, and uh, other business services like uh, um, you know start with audit uh, uh, transaction services stuff like that. You have the consolidation that happened over the last you know 
X number of years. Uh, uh, same with like uh, trust services, company formation. A lot of these sectors, they saw the consolidation and it, it's going to come to intellectual property. You know, it's a, it's a key area for companies to outsource. They don't want to deal with regulatory uh, requirements uh, around the world. So you can offer a one-stop shop. So once you start explaining it like that to the uh, founders, some of them, you know, had an aha moment and said, you're onto something here. And uh, uh, they joined us. And uh, just to uh, mention something, you mentioned cost synergies. And our, our preferred approach as Gulf Capital is to focus on the revenue synergies, you know, look at the network effect. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples that we've done there. Like I mentioned the uh, CWB, uh, uh, we had another platform in uh, travel booking, Rick and Nabil can talk more about that, but that's a, you know, a hotel booking platform. We did the global buy and build to have the network effect to, you know, grow the, grow the revenue instead of focusing on the cost. I think uh, if you get cost synergies from better efficiency, like in the glass uh, plant that I mentioned, you know, we had uh, uh, six furnaces, 24 lines, and then you can specialize each line for a certain color product. And then that becomes a great synergy to have. Cost synergies of, you know, eliminating people is the least preferred method for, for Gulf Capital. I think that's part of the ethos that we have here. You know, we, we don't like to do that actually. Uh, so, 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 so that's, uh, you know, we focus on the revenue synergies, efficiency, uh, you know, better procurement, like in uh, MetaMed, when we combined three uh, diagnostic imaging businesses, we, we became one of the biggest buyers of healthcare equipment in the region. We were at some years, we were buying more than, you know, countries, like our uh, number of MRIs, even you know consumables that we were using was as much as some states in the region so so that's where we got the you know power versus the uh, OEMs and the uh, suppliers versus going for cost of uh, you know eliminating people i think one of the reasons our partner was happy to come along is mohammed and his team had done an enormous amount of internal replumbing of CWB systems. We had a new ERP system. We had developed with another uh, player in the industry a unique portal that allows our customers to communicate with us, have access to where our workflow is, what the status is, uh, et cetera. And then we identified and brought on board a person from another industry um, who had incredible experience at one of the world's largest advertising agencies, um, integrating acquisitions. So we had a battle plan for exactly how we were going to deal with the merger. And we had the technology already or well underway being installed at CWB that would facilitate everything. So I, I think Mohammed is, uh, is underselling what he and his team did to get ready for this acquisition which to respond to another question that you raised is how you minimize risk. You don't go out and do the acquisition, then figure out what you're going to do with it. You figure out what the antecedents are that you need to make a success of it, and you pre-install them. Now, that meant pre-running some expenses, um, but in the overall scheme of things, it was a very wise decision by Mohammed and his team. So obviously having a plan, uh, what's that saying? Uh, failing to plan is planning to fail. 
So having a plan gets you, you know, that that first half of the battle. But the sticky point. I prefer point, Mike Tyson's. Oh, yes, Everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the face. <laughs> Going back to, uh, let's say, a thorny issue, you know, and you've had a lot of coffee with uh, our partner and the gentleman in Luxembourg and convinced them about, you know, this global adventure. Uh, and then comes the thorny issue of valuation. In the middle of that was the uh, Ukrainian conflict last year during the negotiations. So how do you bridge those gaps between what the seller is actually thinks his business is worth and where you think really the business should be valued and then uh, grows in value thereafter. How do you bridge that gap and what what's the approach? The important point is to show them the value that the platform brings to them. You know, it's, uh, to your point, you know, we had a lot of negotiation and valuation with every button that we've done. And most of the time, if the partner is willing we'd offer them a rollover option right uh, so we buy 70 percent the remaining 30 they roll over into the platform and they sit in one place with with us as gulf capital side by side and what we promise them is you know our target returns usually are you know two three four x depending on the deal and the remaining 30 percent that they rolled over could be equivalent to 100 percent of today's value if we do our uh cards right and when we see them that they're willing to roll over it kind of confirms to us that our uh, thesis is correct. What we're onto is something interesting because you know they're not running for the exit gates. They actually are rolling over and co coming alongside us. So I think that that's one area where we try to bridge the valuation gap by offering them the rollover into the platform. Uh, you know, we've in the past done things that Rick doesn't like, like uh, an earn out push two years or so. Uh, to bridge the valuation gap. Um, so, so we have a couple of these that we've used uh, uh, to bridge the valuation gap. Uh, to the risk uh, question that that you uh, said, you know, CWB operating in MENA cannot miss a heartbeat with its clients, right? And the same applies to Petosovic operating in Luxembourg with uh, protecting its uh, clients in Europe, basically. Uh, it cannot also miss a heartbeat. While we're trying to integrate them, and uh, it was very important to have a very good plan for the integration. Uh, like the gentleman that uh, Rick mentioned, he, he, he was saying in a lot of sessions, it's like changing the engines while the plane is flying, basically. It's, it's really a difficult task to do because we're running the existing business, trying to integrate them and come out on the other side. It's, it's a really a tough task and uh, you have to be very prepared and plan for it. Some of it involves running costs ahead of time, like certain functions like uh, marketing, business development, finance. When we were engineering them in our value creation plan, we oversized them for the requirements of CWB, knowing that we are going to bolt on to it. And that involves a certain, you know, uh, cost ahead of time, which 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 in the long term uh, it will pay off hopefully, but uh, it could be painful in the short term. Building on the thorny issues that uh, Alvar talked about, and this is a question that an entrepreneur once asked me, which is, who's who's going to be the big dog? So you're you're having an M and A, you have two targets, you have your existing platform. Who's who's going to be the CEO of the bigger platform? When do you determine that? I think the embedded issue that's more often than not 
in that is when you do something like an earnout. If you're just combining two companies, I think that rational, good managers will figure out who's best suited for the job. And there are ways of protecting your interests through the board of directors, reserved matters, et cetera, that help people get over that. When you add an element like an earnout, where your interest in controlling the business to produce the short term goal that is the KPI for your earnout to get more money, it gets a lot more complicated. But uh, Mohammed can comment on this. But I, I think, in my experience, people have rationally come to to common decisions about who's best to run things, and then you the you you allocate it. And somebody who's willing to sell 80 percent of their business has generally come to a conclusion that they value an exit, and that's part and parcel of their of their management career journey. So I, I don't know. I mean, what's your experience been, Mohammed? Have you found it easy to figure those out, or at least manageable i think they're, they're manageable i think you know uh always any recruitment decision is a 50 50 and uh either, either it's a good one or a bad one and uh sometimes you don't know until later uh unfortunately and uh i i think if someone asks you who's going to be the big dog you walk away from them because you know it shows that they care more about you know certain aspects of titles uh, and titles uh, and you know who's gonna have the big office the corner office and all of that stuff you know they, they are the wrong person for you i would guess and if they're asking that question i think uh the real big dog is the one that cares about you know value creation plan how to create value for himself and or herself if the fights are starting about who's the big dog is probably the, the wrong people the, 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 they have the compass wrong you you mentioned before you know, switching the engines while still flying the plane. I had heard about changing the wheels on the bus while you're still driving down the highway. So you're, you're taking it to a next level. Well, I'm going high goals. He sets very high goals. <laughs> so what are what are some of those pitfalls along the process that typically you, you uh, pre-identify or say, ooh, here are the things that we really need to watch out in managing the M&A process, whether it's during negotiation, during um, the the post merger integration, or even after that, you know, uh, integrating the two businesses really from ERP systems, et cetera, et cetera. What are the th some of the things that you really want to watch out? We have in the audience, you know, some some of our audience members are founders, and, and maybe they may be thinking about M and A and consolidation, given everything that's happening in the world today. So, you know, to hear from you guys would would be very good for that. And, and let's not forget about bricks are not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll come back to that. He, he hates them. I, I've, I, I rarely have seen an earnout where both parties are happy. There's generally tears on one side or the other, if not both. Um, so it's a, pr a practical aversion as opposed to a uh, an academic aversion. I, I think in terms of uh, what we watch out for, I think, you know, during diligence, uh, you know, we do our typical financial tax uh, legal diligence, just to make sure everything is in the right place. Uh, you know, interesting when when we do an acquisition as uh, a buy and build platform, you're doing it with management team that's in the industry sitting alongside you. I mean, we do our diligence, we know our businesses very well, but it's very different for someone that lives that industry to do the diligence. Someone like uh, Halim, when you have a great partner and he's sitting and identifying targets within a couple of phone calls to industry experts, he can find out who's the right targets that we should talk to. Should we avoid these people? The quality, 
perception, all of that becomes a lot faster than when we're doing it. So that that's the interesting bit when you do um, that as a strategic instead of as a financial bidder at that stage. Uh, I think, you know, after the diligence, we, we, we have to identify, as I mentioned, the value creation plan, the integration plan, how we're going to do it. And the gentleman that Rick mentioned, you know, uh, I spoke with him, I said, you know, we're looking to do an acquisition, we want to integrate them. And uh, maybe there'll be another one down the line in that platform as well in a different region. And I said, it's really a difficult task, right? It's two or three companies, we want to maintain the culture. That's the most difficult thing. You know, financial systems, uh, reporting standards, uh, policies and procedures to be common across the whole uh, firm. His response was, I used to do, uh, in, in the advertising agencies that he worked with, they, they were doing one acquisition per month and he was uh, almost one acquisition per month. I think they did like something like 40 in five years. And he was responsible for integrating all of them. So he said, you know, this is doable. So so that's why we, we got encouraged to do the, the, the plan w w with this gentleman. There are certain tactical things that are easy to do implementing a single ERP you know there's going to be a pain point who's going to bill which is the billing entity but you know you'll you'll come around that right that these are tactical things that are easy to do uh the more difficult part is the culture right uh you know there's a, a CWB for example culture and Petosovic and if they're not near enough integrating them will be almost impossible because this is a people's business uh you really need to be uh uh, maintaining the culture, it's, it's important not to uh, lose it. But I think another way to think about it is uh, sort of like silver bullets, right? If we take back, uh, go back to the example that you mentioned, very large organization in the advertising space acquiring however many companies per year. And if they fail in three or four of them, it just gets you know muddied somewhere in the balance sheet and in the financial statements. But in our case, you have these silver bullets that you can't mess up. You know, if you mess up an acquisition, that's value destruction within our holding period of three to four years that really does put a dent in it. As you've mentioned, in the three different strategies from local to regional to international, we've actually been very successful in every single one of them. But it takes that level of preparation and detail to be able to execute and make sure that you don't mess it up. That's that's a little bit the takeaway I'm getting from what you guys are saying. Well, emphasizing what Mohammed has said, culture is a huge part of that. Um, I don't know what's the quote: "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Yeah, Alvaro doesn't like that one. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure I sign up to that one. Okay. But I mean, in, in certain measures, maybe. Okay. Uh, but um, I think culture is really important in executing this. And one of the things I think that is important in Gulf Capital structure and culture that we'd like to see in others is. Not everything that doesn't work out is a mistake. So you don't go looking for somebody to blame them or hold them accountable because a result doesn't come out the way you anticipated. We all face cir circumstances where there's uncertainty and there is risk. And as long as we disclose to one another what we're doing and how we're thinking about it and make good decisions based upon our perceptions of risk, if it doesn't work out, you don't want a manager hiding in his in his spidey hole, um, failing to acknowledge it or be able to deal with it. You want to say, look, this is not working out the way we thought it did for the following reasons and be able to adjust course and 
fix the engine in the air that uh, that Muhammad is describing. And that culture really does contribute to successfully making things work. Even if you didn't get it exactly right um, and you encounter some turbulence along the way, having the right culture where people don't feel concerned about being able to say, look, guys, this is just you know, the application of the money here is really not doing it. We need to change course. You have a much better chance of getting a good outcome. And I think that's that, that cultural aspect that Mohammed has identified um, contributes to that in a big way. Looking a little bit around the corner now and looking at trends where you talked about turbulence along the way, even wobbles, right? With uh, the recent uh, fallout from uh, Silicon Valley Bank, um, I heard from from one fund manager, very early stage, global in nature, they were saying they have a thousand companies affected potentially from that fallout. So, you know, what do you guys see in terms of consolidation opportunities over the next 12 to 24 months, given the current state of affairs in the world economy? I mean, what black swans do we see that we haven't seen yet? No, actually, more looking at it from an opportunity perspective, right? As you're saying, we have a portfolio of 12 companies that still have the ability to expand. Uh, we have a few targets already in sight for Fund 4 and how they will be able to expand, uh, taking advantage of some of those opp opportunities presented by the, the, those shakeouts and, and sort of wobbles in the global economy. The obvious answer is, do we have any companies that would benefit from having the opportunity to acquire very good companies that have wrong balance sheets as a result of this banking fallout. I think it's a little early to figure that out. And I think Silicon Valley Bank has a lot of different companies, not all of which are in our, in our wheelhouse in terms of what we're trying to do here in emerging markets. Uh, but obviously, any event that gives you opportunities to get at really good companies who are having... Um, Financial performance issues from external circumstance uh, would would be an interesting way of looking at it. Good companies that just have bad balance sheets as a result of something like this. But it's not clear to me that the SVB event has a whole lot of uh, implications for us uh, here in the emerging markets just yet. As a fund manager, our principles usually are you know, we we invest in good management. We partner with good people, right? We we don't. Our DNA is not to do turnarounds or, you know, shaky stuff. But as a bolt-on, we could look into some of these things, right? Uh, if we have a solid management team next to us and they say, listen, this opportunity came, there's a company like Rick mentioned, wrong balance sheet, right market, then we can look into it and be a bit more courageous doing that. I think maybe building on what you mentioned there, who does the acquisition? Is it the GC team or is it the management or is it a combination of both? When do you bring in management? I know it's a question I wanted to ask earlier, but building on what you just said. I think it's uh, it's usually a mix. It depends on the situation and the management, right? If if you have a talent inside the company that can assess M&A and, and look into it, then they would take the lead on that, obviously. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of uh, the finance functions, especially in our region, or the regions that we look at, you know, it's uh, you're happy when they can do the reporting and all of that on time, leave alone doing M&A opportunities. So we have to really support the management in, in that side. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes we're blessed with the CEOs and partners that uh, have the, the natural capability to do uh, assessment of M&A and we 
push on them like i mentioned having them by our side makes us a lot stronger and a lot better and faster so we we, we really like uh, when management is sitting by our side in those uh, early uh, target identification but because this is what we do for a living right so we can do the deal process technical stuff the legal documentation take that away from them uh uh you know a lot of times they're changing the wheels on the bus while the bus is driving and we're trying to get them to change the engine while the airplane is flying and it really gets complicated so uh having us and them together working is 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 a great thing they have day jobs and jobs that they need to do to produce value and it's rare that inside one of our companies we have a dedicated resource for m a you have people who are business developers i'm thinking for example, in the, in our USRCM business, who have exposure that gives them the opportunity, but their jobs are business development, not M&A identification, but their jobs give them a window to be able to see that. Um, but, but coming as a joint team generally is a better approach because coming as a strategic buyer, you're received by people much different than a bunch of PE guys showing up on your doorstep having a telephone conversation with you. And the fact that that our portfolio companies are backed by financial resources and availability of financial strength makes them an even more appealing client uh, and combination uh, candidate. Having said that, um, we clearly have to be able to bring the M&A expertise, the financing expertise to them. Um, they can bring the strategic rationale and strategic insights to us. So I think a team approach is just inevitable uh, in the companies that we work with. And, and that's a great way to articulate it. You know, I've I always thought about our M&A approach sort of being the corporate development or corporate M&A arm of our portfolio companies because they don't do that on a day-to-day -day basis. We do. So we support them in that. And sort of looking forward, going back to sort of my question about, you know, trends, but I think looking forward, there's going to be a lot of that on the horizon. Um, and I've, I've in, in, in prior uh, posts, I've written about this where, you know, there's been two billion invested at the early stage here in the region in 2021. And then last year, I think it was three billion. All that cash that has been invested is looking for exits and for growth strategies as well. Uh, M&A is one of those ways to create that exit and growth strategy. So it sounds like uh, with lack of perhaps public listings or uh, other avenues to exit, probably M&A will be one of those main avenues for exit of those early stage companies. So it sounds like for us and for our uh, teams in our portfolio companies, you know, blue skies ahead, lots of opportunities. And maybe with that, we can end it. We can end this session. Thank you, Alvaro. Nabil. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, you Nabil and Alvaro. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the GC Call with me, Alvaro Bella and Nabil Ismail. The GC Call is brought to you by Golf Capital and is produced by Amaya Media. You can follow the show in your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Angami, Pocket Cast, and all the others too. And we'll be back again in a couple of weeks.